0: Let's pray as we finish the book of Malachi. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Christ, and thank you that we can now come before you with boldness and confidence, not in ourselves, but in his finished work on the cross for us. And Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would give us grace to both understand and, and to be rightly overwhelmed by this passage. Um, not, not in fright, but in loving fear that our lives might be adjusted because of it. Uh, significantly and, and uh, continually, Father. Lord, wake our sleeping souls uh, with this word, Father. And I ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What is, uh, so if I had to ask you what your greatest fear was, what would it be? Would it be public speaking? Would it be uh, snakes? Uh, we, we have someone in our house that's deathly afraid of snakes, even worms, because they're kind of like snakes. I tried to explain they weren't really, but um, or spiders. W- w- what is your greatest fear? Do you know what it is? I- is it something a little more global, something a little bigger, and perhaps along the lines of like a financial crisis in, in uh, Europe right now? Is that the issue that causes the greatest fear for you and and the impact on on the economy? Or maybe it's the nuclear issue working between now Iran and uh, Israel and Syria. I mean, what is the greatest fear that you face? And, And when you begin to think through what the fears are, and I'm not saying those aren't legitimate concerns for us as a world, they are. But it's amazing whenever we speak about the fears that we may have, does it ever occur to you that it's proper and right to fear God? Or even to fear God on that last day? You know, do, do you, have you thought this week about that in any measure or this past month? Last week we talked about that that day of separation where the righteous will be separated from the wicked and the, those who serve will be separated from those who do not serve. And, and, and the scriptures we're, we're going to read... Call it the great and awesome day. I don't think he means awesome like we're going to a theme park. But this great and awesome day of the Lord, does that cause any fear? You know, we're in the last book, we're in the last section, and God has a final word before the Old Testament closes. This is the word that has been given. To the people of God, it's it's startling. It really is. I've been praying for our souls to be kind of woken up to the reality of what we're reading. It's either true or it's all make believe. If it's true, it ought to arrest us. I mean, I think we kind of diss the stewardess as she goes through and you put the thing on and the thing comes down. We we've been through that a hundred times. We don't need to hear that again. This isn't the same way. This is vital important. I don't know what else you'll hear this week, not because I'm saying it, but because God said it to us in in preparation and warning. So turn with me, if you will, to Malachi chapter 4, and we'll read the entire chapter. It's only six verses, but I am praying, God, wake us to the truth of this. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. I mean, and by the way, as we read this, yeah, I've read this thing a few times this week, and Don't miss the metaphors. Remember, the metaphors are in place to help describe something. But don't literalize the metaphors. I mean, it's a metaphor, but remember this, that the metaphor usually is indicating there's something greater than the metaphor. So if the metaphor wakes you up, then that which is true ought to really wake you up kind of thing. So he says, Behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. the old testament wow okay so so the first thing i want you to see is in the first three verses god's speaking about the nature of this day he's speaking about the about how this day is going to occur what's it going to look like and then he's going to speak to how we kind of prepare or how we respond to this day Critical information here. You see him begin right off with behold, that, that kind of grab you by the shirt collar word. Give me your attention. Pay heed to me. Don't treat me lightly. I'm giving you something vital. He's saying behold. The Lord is speaking about this day that's coming. Th- this day is going to be a final separation where judgments are sealed. This day is going to come burning like an oven, like a furnace. Now, now remember in chapter 3, there was already that fire, but it was a refining fire. Here, it's a destroying fire. These evildoers, these arrogant, they're not going to get away. They're not going to be disguising themselves. They're not going to sneak out through some, through some loophole. It, it is utter destruction, this burning like an oven. Now, now who are these arrogant and evildoers? I mean, that, that kind of is important. To know, you know, there's sheep and goats. I don't want to be mixed up with the wrong crowd kind of thing. And so who are these arrogant and evildoers? Well, we already saw them in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, I'm going to come near you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Well, we can breathe a sigh of relief there because we're not in that group, and we're thankful for that, aren't we? So he's kind of saying this. This is a group that we can kind of find ourselves distancing ourselves from. They're not our kind of people. We're different than they are, and so we're in okay shape. Well, notice what he says at the end of verse 5. He says, they don't fear me. In other words, the arrogant, the evildoers have been the people that God has been speaking about through the entire book. It's those people who don't fear God enough to offer him unblemished sacrifices. Those people that come to worship with a half a heart. That's who he seems to be speaking about. Those who rob the Lord. They don't give generously. They don't fear God that he does own everything. And so when they give, they kind of give what they can give. And they give with a heart that is like the amount that they give. It's not really there. They don't honor their marital commitments. They don't fear God, the union that they made with their spouse, and so they put in enough time into the marriage to make it work. But they don't pursue godliness and faithfulness in their marital union. It's these people that the arrogant evildoers are those who hold God in contempt when they see the wicked prosper, and they're not. Or they hold God in contempt, that he doesn't love us. How have you loved us, they asked. They have the audacity. They don't fear God. They just say, how have you loved us? I mean, they're breathing. That might be one indication, but but they don't have that fear of God. I mean, so it's much more than just the the other people here. Remember now, he's not talking to the nations around Israel. He's talking to a covenant community. They're religious folk. I mean, they're doing, they're looking somewhat on the outside like they're religious. He's saying they're the arrogant and the evildoer. They don't fear me, they don't esteem me, and they don't serve me. Wow, that, I mean, that kind of expands it. They don't repent when challenged by God. They don't humble themselves before God in fear over he's the Lord of hosts. That means he owns everything. He's greater and over everything. And, and they, don't, they don't fear that. So they don't really repent. And they hear a message and talks about something, you know, it's probably helpful. But they don't, they don't come to terms with God for who God is. He says, These are the arrogant and the evildoers. And the sad thing is, the truly tragedy is that a day is coming that will be burning like an oven and reduce them to stubble, like the chaff from wheat. You know how the sun rises and it's just so hot, and then they just spontaneously ignite that they're going to neither root nor stump, neither branch. It's total, it's complete. That's what the day will bring. That is a fear-producing day. I mean, we think about the nuclear issue, and, and as I said, that's a legitimate temporary concern. This is both temporary and eternal concern for us. So as the sun rises on the one bringing judgment, notice that the sun rises on those who fear my name. He says, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Okay, this is now, remember judgment, this separation revealing all things, those who fear my name. Remember last week we talked about this. So what does it mean to fear the name of God? Well, it means to reverence God for sure. It means to understand. It demands a level of faith because you have to believe he exists. And when you see what he's like, you're thinking, you revere him. You stand back naturally. To to fear God is to tremble at the thought of crossing him. I mean, to fear God is this idea of, of total allegiance. I regard him and his word, that, that his character and his glory cause me to live differently. That's really what it means to fear him. That, that you, if you know God and you know him as the Lord of hosts that your life is going to be altered around who he is, what he says, what he thinks. It's not just, this is what I think about God. I love it when people tell me that. Well, what does God think about God? And shouldn't that kind of twist you a little? Shouldn't that alter you? To fear God is to not be perfect, but it is to be repentant. So when you do hear a word, when you read a word, when a brother comes and admonishes you, what do you do with that? I mean, the person who fears God, you see it. I mean, mean, they act in response to God. So that's a definition, hopefully clear, for those who fear God. Now look what he promises. The son of righteousness, that's S-U-N, just to make sure you understand. The son of righteousness. This is a difficult verse to interpret because it's only used here. What does it mean? Well, uh, there's a few. Let me give you two. Uh, You got door A, you got door B here. Um, Many understand this to be that it's the day, on that final day, God's perfect righteousness will be revealed and fill everything, like the light from the sun fills the sky and fills life. His righteousness will will be uh, demonstrated, will be delivered. It will come in such measure that it will bring healing to those who are wounded. Those god fears who have suffered in this life under the hands of the arrogant evil evildoer, they will be totally healed, that they will enjoy the full fruits of, of all that God intends for salvation. Think about in Isaiah 58, he says, Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. So it's this amazing day where God heals his people through his righteousness. Other scholars would, and particularly the reformers, would see this as applying more to Jesus Christ, kind of looking forward, even though it is S-U-N of righteousness, that Jesus is coming to bring the righteousness of God. But same idea that healing will take place and that Jesus will be the one who ultimately heals his people and draws them back into the community in fullness before God. And, and the reason that some scholars would feel that way is because in Luke chapter 1, The angel speaks to uh, Zacharias, that's John the Baptist's father. And here's what the angel says. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, referencing John the Baptist. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall rise and visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into a way of peace. And so this has kind of been applied to Jesus. And, and we do know that Jesus came, and, and he quoted of himself from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So you see this language that Jesus is using, He's going to bring healing in his message, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his return. Now, which one is it? Or is it some combination of the both? Well, I don't know. Um, I like the idea that it's just the sheer righteousness of God. Actually, I was on the other one at the beginning of the week, but I kind of moved Uh, But either way, it is the healing that's going to take place that is to encourage the saint. But not only that, look at the joy that's going to be produced for those who fear God. He says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I mean, you can imagine this scene. So the calf is in a small, dark stall. It's dank. And all of a sudden, the doors are blown open. And the sunshine floods in. He goes out in just abundant pasture, abundant sunshine. It's unbounding joy. It's free. It's been liberated. This is what God is speaking about. On that day, we shall be liberated. We shall be made free. I mean, all the struggles and the hardships and and the besetting sins and all those issues that plague us in this life, we'll be free from. The guilt, the shame. We'll be healed from that and freed from that. I mean, you see those old clips of War II when the allies liberated Paris. You didn't have to tell them to be happy. I mean, the darkness of Nazism had been removed. They were now free to be about life. I mean, you can just imagine that. Look at what else he says. He says that we shall tread upon the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In this day, there's going to be a major reversal. Whereas the wicked were prospering and the righteous suffering, now it's reversed. God's blazing judgment is going to reduce the wicked to ashes, the ashes that will be under your feet. That's a picture for victory that God's people will be victorious and vindicated. You know, you'd put in in this age, you would put your foot on the neck of your conquered enemy which was total victory. And so the ashes are under your feet. He's saying that All just, godly, perfect justice will prevail. Wrongs will be righted. I mean, it will be a day of glory. I I want you to think through. You've got, just in these first three verses, you have the judgment upon the wicked, and you you have healing, you have joy, and you have liberty and justice for the righteous. You need to consider these things. Folks, we have to meditate. I feel as if we've got to just stop and say, I need five minutes to consider what I've just said. I mean, it's going to go on right over your heads, and you won't think about it in 82 minutes. And yet it's profound. God, this is God speaking. He's holding you. He says, this is for you. This is the sustenance for you to live this life, this hope for us. Now, when is this day coming? Is it the last day? Well, it, it, yes and no. I, I, I would say when I look at a text like this, uh, I would say that it's seen in these successive fulfillments, right? In other words, you often see things in Scripture like God's judgment on Adam and God's judgment on the flood and God's judgment on the Tower of Babel. You see these judgments they're like previews of the final judgment. They're pointing to it. They're evidencing the truth, but they aren't the full truth. In fact, T.V. Moore was a biblical scholar back in the 19th century, and here's what he wrote about this passage, about this idea of is was this passage fulfilled when Jesus came, or or was this passage will it be fulfilled when Jesus comes again? Here's what he writes. It is true that the deluge, or the flood, the destruction of Sodom, Babylon, and Jerusalem, and all the subsequent visitations of God's wrath were days of the Lord. And in each one of them, the proud and evildoers were as chaff. But as each one did not exhaust these ominous predictions, so altogether have not yet met the full reach of the terrors, which only will be done in that future day in which the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and the drama of earth shall be ended. All previous judgments were but reddenings of the dawn that betoken the coming, but they did not unfold. The terrible brightness of that awful day. The finality of this day is distinctly declared in the utter ruin that is predicted to bring. This is an incredible day. It's an incredible day coming. I I, I want you to stop and consider with me the certainty of this day. God says the day is coming. Now listen, I know that we get caught up in the things just, our days turn into weeks and our weeks turn into months and our months turn into years and things continue the same and it just seems to never change. But a day is coming, he says. This is God speaking. Our world isn't cyclical. It's not random. The events of our world are not unguided. They're directed by God. He said a day is coming. I want to wake us up to that, the certainty of the day. We need to remind ourselves. You need to remind each other of this truth. Everything in life is asking you just to kind of drift off into a sleep and just keep moving forward in life. Just get around the next weekend. Just get around the next set of bills that you've got to pay. Just get around the next issue, whatever it might be. A day is coming. I also want you to consider the harsh language of this day. He is using some very dark, strong language. We live in a very tolerant culture. It's very, very politically correct, where we don't like to talk about separations. The day of tolerance of sin has trumped the day of judgment of sin. So that's the culture we're in. Folks, that's where you're living and breathing. And and this language seems like it comes out of the 15th century, in some dark corner of Romania. It just doesn't accord with the way we think and act today. And so what do we do with that? Do you realize that many scholars think that it's, it's passages like this that gave birth to theological liberalism? Theological liberalism, the denying of these doctrines, why? Well, you know, the theological liberals in many conservative camps really get a bad rap. They've destroyed the faith. And, and, and what I would say is this, that I don't think the theological liberals tried to destroy the faith. I think the theological liberals tried to actually preserve the faith. I, I think that they actually saw this as detrimental to the viability of Christianity. These kind of passages to the modern mind, these don't make sense. We've got to get rid of them or change them or reinterpret them. I mean, what in the world, this fire and judgment, all that sort of stuff? That's stuff of the Middle Ages. I think that the theological liberal was actually trying to help the faith by making it more sensible to the modern mind. We're way too sophisticated for this language. This is so pre-scientific. And so they made changes. And some of the changes that you'll hear are, for example, like annihilationism. Annihilationism is this idea that the soul will be punished for a time and then cease to exist. Or some move all the way to universalism. Universalism is where, in the end, love's going to win. It all works out. God's going to save everybody because he's a God of love. Now, I will admit both of those changes make God look nicer. They definitely do. But neither are true to Scripture. And, and, And the hard word of Scripture is the clear word. You always take the clear reading. You don't try to interpret a clear passage with an ambiguous passage and then read back to the clear it's a hard word. It's simply saying this, that the, pe- the person who doesn't fear God, fe- believing that God exists, doesn't fear God, is going to stand before God in judgment. The judgment's going to be eternal. Separation from God forever. And the one who does fear God and turns in faith to God's provision of a, of a son will rejoice with God forever. I want you to consider the certainty. I want you to consider the reality. I want you to consider the scope of this day. There is no agnostic that day. There is no one that says, sorry, I take a pass. I just don't know. They will all know. There will be a full separation. There will be no middle ground to stand on. The last thing I want you to consider regarding this day is your own position in it. I I would ask you to to think through uh, your own position. Look at your life. That's what Paul tells us to do. I think it's a good piece of advice. Test yourselves, he says, to see if you're in the faith. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 13. And and so you ought to test yourself as I have tested myself. When you look at your spiritual life, when you look at your relationship with God, do you you see the form of religion? Do you see um, really little fear of God? Do you see little desire to serve God? Do you see little desire to give generously? Do you see little desire to to move towards your spouse in a way that displays the greatness of God through your relationship? I mean, these are all the subjects we've been discussing in this book of Malachi. I mean, do you see this repentant heart? Is your soul easily convicted by sin leading you to the gospel for forgiveness? Or, or, Or maybe you are, maybe you do. You do repent and you do have an increasing fear of God. Perhaps you do want to serve God in greater measure and you do want to put more effort into uh, your marital union as it reflects God. I mean, where are you on which side? You need to investigate this. You know, it drew me to uh, the parable that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 18. It kind of a, a, a turn of events for people. He was trying to teach about the nature of salvation here. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So right away we know the Pharisee's in, the tax collector's out, right? I mean, the Pharisee's doing the, doing the deed, he's doing all the stuff, he's doing it right, and boom, you got the tax collector. He's clearly way out of sorts, so we know who's getting in and who's getting out. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, Pharisee, tax collector, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Boy, he's got a litany of reasons why he's in great shape. Standing right up before the Lord, looking at him, everything's great with with God and I. I fast twice a week, give tithes of all that I get. Now, most of us in here, I don't know if we could even say all those things. Okay, then he says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. Why? I guess he's scared God's going to kill him. He's so aware of his sin, he doesn't even want to look at him. It's like my dog when I'm about to discipline her. <laughs> Ears go back, head goes down, she doesn't even want to look at me. Why? Because she knows I have the authority to give it to her. He's just beating his breast, which, is a, which was a sign of repentance. Just, God have mercy on me, God have mercy on me. That's what he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The God-fear, are you a God-fear? It really is important to discern. And I have, I, have a, I have a word, so that's for all of you. Now, I've got a word for the, the student, though, because I was thinking, I've been praying a lot for you students this week, because when you're young, you don't have a conception of time. I mean, that's not to say you're always late all the time. That is true. But a conception of time in terms of how fast it goes and how you come to terms with these end-of-life things. And and students often, they, they read this and they say, I can't imagine God doing that. Do not be guilty of limiting God to being only able to do what you can imagine. It's really a dangerous thing. I mean, students, be aware of this. It's, life seems so far for you. You've got so many years ahead. And so you don't need to worry about this stuff yet. You definitely do. You definitely do. Because you're going to be my age in three days, or it's going to feel like. And, and to the non-Christian here, I, I would just ask you to engage this idea of a terminal point. You know, because in here, for the non-Christian, there is a word of hope for you, and there's a word of warning. And I kind of want to draw a picture. J.C. Rowe drew this picture of of the two criminals, you know, that were crucified on each side of Jesus. And they said they give a word of warning and a word of hope. Uh, The the criminal to the right of Jesus is the one that said, hey, remember me. Would you remember me when you get to paradise? And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, That's a word of hope to us. It's never too late. You're never too old. You haven't done too much. That the mercy of God is always greater than your sin. And so turn to him. That's a word of hope to you. But it's a word of warning as well, to not presume upon the Lord. Because that other man didn't turn, and he was not in paradise that day. So there's a word of warning and a word of hope. Okay, so this is the teaching that Jesus has, or that Malachi has for us, that God has. I'll get it. uh, That God has for us in these first three verses. So this is the nature of the day. So now what do we do? How do we respond to this? Well, look with me at verse 4, because it's kind of an unusual verse. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses. I'm taking this, you know, a lot of scholars look at this. It seems so disjointed, and they say it's a later edition, a redactor just added it later. I, I, don't, I don't think so. He's saying, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. Now, I think he's strolling on my back to Sinai, the giving of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and, and these laws. But the question is, how does me remembering the law, or for Malachi's audience, how does Malachi's audience profit by remembering the law? Well, of course, there is the call to obey the law, which they had not been doing, hence the book of Malachi. But I think there's a little bit more. I think when you read the law, you see the holiness of God. You see the glory of God, the greatness of God. You see his perfections. You see his magnificence. And you're overwhelmed by it. And then you see, then you see the laws that he gives and the failure that we constantly run into in keeping it. I think when God said, remember the law of my servant Moses, I think God was saying, remember my holiness. And he's saying, remember your sinfulness. Why? Well, back in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, since the days of your fathers, you've always set aside my commands. They always disobeyed the law. They could never walk in line of the law. I mean, think about it. God brought prophets to them to call them to live according to the law, and they didn't. God brought curses because they failed to live according to the law and sent them into exile in Babylon. They still didn't obey. God in mercy drew them back and restored them to the land. They still didn't obey. I mean, the whole book of Malachi has been calling a wayward people to obey the law, and they didn't obey. I mean, it shows us at the end of the Old Testament Their hearts were hard. This isn't a problem for Israel alone. This is a problem for Adam. That men, women are prone to wander. You can take the boy out of the country. You cannot take the country out of the boy. The law is showing us our absolute need for one to come. And you see that in the law, not just in the promise of a, of a covenant coming that will be written upon our hearts and, and obedience from the heart. But the law and the sacrificial system shows that God is giving us a shadow of what's to come to bring forgiveness and to bring restoration and to bring us to a place where we can obey the law with a heart that is for God. So I think he's saying, look back, people. And they t- talking God through the prophet Malachi, saying, look back at my holiness and your failure and your need for one to come. And then he says in verses 5 and 6, he goes, look forward. If you notice in 5 and 6, he goes, behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers. Now, what does this mean? Well, we know that that forerunner was coming before the Messiah was to come. We saw that a few weeks back. Well, who is this? Well, you remember Elijah. By the way, he doesn't say Elijah the Tishbite. That is the Elijah of prior generations. He says, Elijah the prophet, which kind of leaves open this idea that there might be types of Elijahs coming after him. You remember Elijah, is the father of the prophets? The camel hair, kind of ate funky food. But what he did was he was calling the people to repentance. He was calling the nation of Israel to repent and to return to the Lord, to serve and obey him only. And now this prophet like Elijah, is coming. And he's going to what? He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Is this bringing back some social order? No, I think it's bringing the people back to walking in line of the covenant with God, which will then bring a natural order to their home. So it ends with this warning. This prophet's going to come. So he says, look back and look forward. There's going to be one who comes. But it ends on the warning now, now, here's what I want you to grab. He says, last I come and strike the land with a decree. And then it just stops. So what does it mean? Well, the story's not finished, clearly, right? The end of Malachi isn't the end of the story. So how does the story end? Well, there's 400 years of prophetic silence. And then there's a voice that we hear in the wilderness and he's crying out to prepare the way of the Lord. This is John the Baptist. Is John the Baptist this Elijah? Well, Jesus seemed to think so. He said in Matthew eleven eleven, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and in, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, do you believe it, that he's the Elijah? Not just that. But the angel that prophesied to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, said this, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel is applying Malachi 4.5 to John the Baptist. That's, I feel confident about that interpretation. John the Baptist seems to think he was a type of Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He ate the food like Elijah. He lived in the desert like Elijah. And he preached a gospel of repentance like Elijah. But he wasn't calling people now just to obey the law. He was calling people now to obey Christ. He says in Matthew 3, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see the parallel to Malachi 4 in that. It shouldn't surprise us, then, that at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was being glorified, that it was Moses and Elijah there with him. The same, look back to Moses, look forward to Elijah. That this passage, I would argue, was fulfilled in part in the coming of Jesus, and it will be fulfilled in its consummate form at his return. So how do we live? So what do you and I do with this? We live in this, this interesting time where Jesus has come already. He is to come again. I tried to do justice to the passage in the Old Testament context, but now for you and New Testament people, how do we respond? Well, clearly the response is the same. You, you get rid of your eschatological charts and wheels and calendars. We don't need people to give us dates. We are called to live by faith and repentance. That's what the scripture calls us to do, to repent and live in fear of God. You don't need the latest teaching. It's <clears throat> this idea of repentance. What do I mean by that? Repentance, I don't mean that you feel sorry or you're regretting some of the things you've done in life, although that may be true and right. But when I talk about repentance, as the scripture talks about it, it's, you're coming to a new understanding of who God is and so repentance means that you're changing your mind, you're turning away from things and you're living and orienting your life around a new thing that is God. That to repent doesn't just occur at conversion. Yes, it does then. So the time that I came to faith in Christ, I was convicted of the reality of Christ and my sin, and I repented of my sins. But we keep repenting. That's the issue of living in fear of God means that we're always repenting because now if you're a child of God and you walk in sin, you walk as a child of the world, then you repent, you turn. I mean, here's how I practice repentance. Regularly, as I'm up in the morning, I look at my life with God. I look at my life with Carol. I look at my life with my kids, with this church, with the way I handle my money. And as I'm reading the word, as I, as I experience conviction, then I, I repent. God, forgive me. My repentance doesn't bring me God's favor. It brings me a greater enjoyment of God's love, for sure. But, but God has already loved me. I don't want you seeing repentance as a cause of God loving me, but it's a means to an end of being made right with God. That's why Paul in Acts 24, 16 said, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He is always repentant of my idolatries, of my tendencies towards sin. And over a life of repenting, I'm constantly being refreshed in the gospel. I'm constantly keeping my soul clean before the Lord, appreciating His work of grace in my life, and I'm being sanctified. That's how we prepare. We repent and we believe. What do we believe? We believe in the gospel. We're called to believe in the work that Christ has done for us, not just at your conversion, but I'm called to believe today that God has more for me today as I walk in accordance with his word than the pleasure that I can create for myself. That I'm believing in the gospel, that he who did not spare his own son for me but gave him up for us all, he will graciously give us all things. So I'm believing today. We repent and believe every day. I can give generously because I believe he will care for me. I can love Carol sacrificially because I know he's honored in that. I can come to worship fully with all of my life because I know he'd be satisfied in that, and I'll have my greatest joy in him. So it's repent and believe. So we see in this passage... Just real quickly, the nature of this last day in verses 1, 2, and 3. Preparing, we remember the law. We're thinking. We're repenting. We're looking to Christ. We're repenting and we're believing. So let's do this. Let's just take a few minutes and uh, pray. And what I'm going to ask you to do is just respond to this word and this scripture. I'm going to begin. David will close us. But in this response, I would ask you just to be brief, but to be loud. And look at your scriptures as you pray, and let them be the fuel for your prayers. Father, thank you for this word. Father, give us a a joyful seriousness over this day for those who know you. A joyful seriousness. We are looking for the day but we're looking with a serious joy. Father, grant that to us. Bring about change in our lives in accordance with this word. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.